Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Our guest today is the teacher and author Andrew Holacek. Andrew is known for his expertise in Tibetan meditation techniques and dream yoga, as well as the subject of today's discussion, preparing for death. Andrew has previously led a tricycle online retreat on death and dying, and his new book, Preparing to Die, Practical Advice and Spiritual Wisdom from the Tibetan Buddhist Perspective, expands on the material and provides a comprehensive manual on the dying process. The book offers a range of subjects, from Western preconceptions about death and the spiritual opportunity it offers, to more practical matters in planning for death. Tricycle's founding editor, Helen Tworkov, joined Andrew at St. John's University in Collegeville, Minnesota, to discuss this new book and other matters of death and life. Now let's listen to Helen and Andrew. Hello, my name is Helen Tworkov, and I am here with Andrew Holchek, the author of Preparing to Die, Practical Advice and Spiritual Wisdom from the Tibetan Buddhist Tradition, published last year by Snow Lion. Uh, this is really an amazing book, an extraordinary compendium, a kind of encyclopedic uh, offering of both spiritual and practical advice uh, f- uh, from the Buddhist tradition, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Um, and Andrew, my first question for you is, uh, since the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying was published, the book by Sogil Rinpoche, which was such a seminal, extraordinary book that came out at least 25 years ago, there's been quite a growing literature on the subject of death and dying. Some of it has come from uh, American teachers in the Buddhist tradition, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition like yourself, or from teachers in the Zen tradition. Uh, What is it that compelled you to add to this body of literature that we now have? And what is it about your book that fulfills something that we didn't have before? Yeah, well, you know, Sogyal Rinpoche's book really was a groundbreaking text. When that thing was published, it um, it put the death and dying movement, at least from the Tibetan Buddhist perspective, really on the map. It, was, it still remains a, a seminal kind of keystone text. And what I attempted to do with this book was a, a bit of a kind of a distillation of the dozens or so books that have been published since then. But my principal charter was to not only synthesize this vast topic, but in particular to try to put it into a, a format that would be really practical and really applicable for people because um, the many books that are out there, as marvelous as they are, some have a theoretical predisposition, others have you know more of a cultural predisposition. And what I thought I would do was create something that would give people really highly helpful tips, things that they could use now, things that they could use to help others now that would help them and others go through this otherwise challenging time. Well, the book certainly does that. I, I, I for one, don't ever even want to travel without it because it, it's sort of like, what, 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 what if? Yeah. Both in terms of what if I was suddenly uh, dying or what if I was with somebody who was suddenly dying or found myself in a situation where I might be of help? And the book really spells it out for you. So uh, I feel very grateful for that. Yeah, I I tried to structure it in a way that would be, um, you know, like you alluded to, somewhat encyclopedic in the sense that the particular topics that one might be interested in are very easily um, found. You know, there's a sequence, a progression of what to do 
for yourself before, during, and after death, what to do for others before, during, and after death. And then also both those um, general classifications within the larger schema of both a spiritual and practical bent. So really, once again, the idea was, is you know, could I somehow create one volume where really most of the um, salient points could be condensed that could help yourself and others in this really remarkable time? And really, the, the I think one of the central things I tried to convey with this book, um, and maybe we can talk about this for a little bit, is that if we establish a relationship to these otherwise unwanted stations in life, um, we really can transform what is arguably the greatest obstacle in life, which is the end of it, into the greatest opportunity. And most people don't think of end of life and death as things that one can look forward to. But one of the great um, discoveries of my extensive study of this material is that if we really look at it deeply, we discover that it it really is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And that may seem hard to believe, but um, if we can relate to um, old age, sickness, and death in the proper way, it truly gives us something to look forward to. And, you know, this reverses our kind of Western knee-jerk response to end-of-life situations, which is really just ignore it, run away. But if we look at it properly, uh, there's a lot that we can look forward to that can completely transform the way we relate to old age, sickness, and death. You know, in uh, the very first issue of Tricycle in 1991, Spalding Gray interviewed His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And one of the things he asks him about is death. And the Dalai Lama, death, dying, fear of dying. And the Dalai Lama answers by saying, you know, I've been preparing for this all my life. I'm really looking forward to it. And people were completely confused and, and disturbed by that. It was, and it, and it plugged into a whole kind of Western view of Buddhism as kind of gloomy and nihilistic. And why are these people make death the centrality? One of the things in your book is that there are many opportunities to view it in a kind of go from nihilism to a kind of celebration of this possibility. And uh, could you talk more about that? Why is why is it this opportunity? Why why is it this extraordinary opportunity that we have? Yeah, yeah. I think this point really should be driven home. And um, well, you know, first of all, in the, the Buddhist tradition, they talk about three levels of practitioner in relationship to death. And just as you alluded to from His Holiness, that the highest level of practitioner actually looks forward to death um, because they realize that really there is no such thing as death for the highest level of practitioner. It really is. Um, enlightenment. And the second level of practitioner is one who absolutely has no fear because they really they understand the mechanics of the process, they understand their own mind, which is really what the journey into and beyond death is all about. It's a journey into and through one's own mind. And then the third level of practitioner is, is, is one who really has no regret. You know, they really have established a, a, a sane relationship to life and death so that when um, these particular stations of life come up upon them, they really understand what's going on and how to relate to it. So um, the reason it's so auspicious or fortuitous in terms of opportunities for growth is because contrary to what the Western world says, you know, the Western scientific approach says that the mind is a byproduct of the brain. Um, the spiritual traditions of which Buddhism, you know, is just one along in this tradition says, well, no, I think we have this a little bit backwards here. It's actually 
the body doesn't really give birth to the mind. The body actually restricts and limits the mind. And so when the body is actually dropped, if one can relate to the level of freedom that's actually brought about at that moment when the confines and the constrictors of the body are released and mind becomes reality, then if one can negotiate that mindscape with some conviction and control, then the limitations of the body no longer restrict the capabilities of the mind. Um, And the classic analogy is that during life, um, if you had a big tree stump, for instance, and you tried to move it, it might take a dozen people to move a tree stump. But if you take that same tree stump and you move it into a fluid, you know, like a, a body of water, now all of a sudden it's very easily moved. And this is the, the type of opportunity that awaits a practitioner, is that the fluidity of the mind, when it's no longer trapped in the confines of the body, that fluidity is simultaneously a great opportunity if one is prepared. And conversely, if one is not prepared, there is some peril associated with it because that fluidity, that freedom, um, instead of being seen for what it is from a kind of narrow, restricted, or egoic perspective, can create a sense of panic. You know, it's like there's too much space. And um, somewhat ironically, that which we most desperately seek during life, which is freedom and space, well, we finally will have that freedom and space when we die. And yet if we don't have a proper relationship to it, then the knee-jerk response to that freedom is panic, contraction, and constriction. Um, so this is why it's so incredibly helpful to understand, to have a view. I think one of the most important things that can be brought home in these teachings is that simply with a proper view, just uh, having a, a really clear map of what the possibilities are, that map alone can be powerful enough to to really instill a kind of what I refer to sometimes as a like a psychic GPS. It's as if even doctrinally, through the mere study of this material, you are starting to install this GPS system in your own heart-mind that can be brought um, to bear at just the moments when you need it and can really help you understand where you are, what you need to do, and uh, um, allow you to take advantage of this extraordinary opportunity. So there are times in your book when it sounds like you know, we really have to, quote, prepare to die. We, we set the GPS system. We do some practices. We learn about the bardos, the different stages that we go through. We learn about the dissolution of the body. There are times when your descriptions of this process are parallel to meditation practice. 100%. And so my question is, uh, what role does meditation, how much does it parallel? How much... Does it? How much does it prepare us in a way that has nothing to do with quote death and dying? What, how do you make those distinctions, yeah, or do you, or should we be making yeah, those distinctions? Really, really One of the things I've discovered in, in several decades of really intensive study and practice of this material is that, in my experience, without any doubt, um, the spiritual path, as I've come to understand it, really is death in slow motion. And as you alluded to, Helen, it's like virtually every practice that we do, starting from our mindfulness or shamatha practice progressing into Vipassana, progressing into Tonglin and all the other practices, they really are either directly or indirectly preparing us for death because uh, they're doing so in, in several ways. One is that, you know, as you know, in Tibetan, the word for meditation is gom, um, which literally means or is translated as to become familiar with or to become acquainted with. So what meditation is doing altogether from day one 
is it's giving you a profound opportunity to establish a relationship and to become familiar with your own mind. And this is profoundly helpful at the moment of death because as um, Kabir once said of death, what is found then, i.e. at the moment of death, is found now. So the idea that I like to refer to it is, is like mindscape becomes landscape. I mean, it's just like in a dream or in a particular lucid dream, which we can return to later because this is where a very a wonderful practice called dream yoga came about in the t- Tibetan tradition specifically to prepare people for death. But the idea is that by becoming familiar with your mindscape now, which is what we're doing when we're engaged in just conventional meditation, we actually are quite literally preparing for death because we're becoming familiar with our own mind. And I mean, really, if you think about it, what's taking place at the moment of death is that as all these senses dissolve and as, as the as the body um, starts to uh, evaporate or disintegrate, mind becomes reality simply because there's nothing else. It really is like a dream. So if we can become familiar with that mind, our mind now, on our terms, then when that mind is revealed, um, either in dream or in death, then all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, we have uh, an opportunity to relate to the contents of those experiences. And the other thing that is very, very helpful with traditional practices even now is that if we look at what's taking place in a great deal of our meditation, is we're really learning how to let go. I mean, very often when we engage just in basic mindfulness meditation, basic shamatha practice, you know, very often the instruction is you're paying attention to your breathing or your body, a thought interrupts your mindfulness, the invitation is to recognize that thought to do some label, whatever it might be. In my tradition, very often the label is simply just thinking. That thought is then released, and you're returning back to the present moment. So a large part of the meditative path, uh, certainly my own experience, is not only learning how to become familiar with our own mind, both in its relative and then absolute perspective, which we can talk about later if you wish, but also learning how to let go, learning how to, to let thoughts and emotions just pass through our mind like clouds in the sky. And if they do that, then they no longer have the power that they normally would to kind of pull us, seduce us, or yank us into um, unwanted states of mind. So this is why, again, Sogyal Rinpoche's book, The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, was such a seminal um, book because it approached the preparation for death within the context of how to live. And that, to me, is one of the really marvelous, marvelous um, byproducts of this type of study and practice is that everything that we do in preparation for death, if you simply wanted to prepare for death, you would find that those practices have an immediate application for how we live. And conversely, what you're doing now in your meditation that helps you prepare for life has an immediate application for death. So part of what I try to do in this book is point out those confluences so that people can maybe empower their sense of practice and see it within that larger framework. So here again, when you're sitting in meditation, what are you working with? The arising, abiding, and cessation of thought. That helps you deal with the arising, abiding, and cessation of each life. And then just to fill in the blank, of course, then you have the, the sleep and dream yoga practices that also fit in there. And you can work, each one of these meditations and studies can help you understand your mind as it kind of iterates or expresses itself in these other um, formats, so to speak. Yeah, considering that we still uh, live in a society that engages in an enormous degree of denial of death, 
It certainly seems to be changing with something called the death and dying movement, but we still, there's enormous denial. And we see a lot of young people interested in Buddhism, and they do seem to be more interested in liberation in terms of the moment in this life than uh, they haven't quite figured out that they're going to die, or they're not quite willing to deal with, quote, preparation for dying. Right. So in a way, given your descriptions and uh, what happens in the meditation process, what we're engaged in in the mm-hmm. meditation process, at a certain age, you can kind of back into it. Beautifully said. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but, but, but of course, the, the question does come up, and it comes up in your book over and over again. It's like, to what extent is it beneficial to have a more specific, deliberate approach to preparing to die rather than just say, I'm going to do my meditation practice, I'm going to let go, I'm going to be aware of moment, I'm going to, I'm going to meditate as a way of becoming familiar with this mind uh, and liberating the suffering that this mind can create and enjoying the liberation that this mind is capable of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, when this becomes um, of interest or applicable to people, that's a really compelling question. Um, I think it's hard to, you know, impose these type of teachings on anybody. Um, and I think really what will happen is people simply go through life circumstance because really our lives, every day our moments, uh, the moments of our lives are reigned with impermanence and death. I mean, that's that's one of the fundamental descriptions of our reality. And I think, as you know, you know, if there is a definition of what Buddhism is, Buddhism is a description of reality. And reality includes impermanence and death. And so these Bardo teachings... Um, they simply bring that aspect of reality, which you refer to as being in such denial, they simply bring them into the light of conscious awareness. And when that takes place for uh, an individual or practitioner as a personal matter, I think it usually will come about when reality slaps them in the face, when a parent or a pet or a loved one dies, and all of a sudden, you know, the comfort zone of their conventional experience is just completely shattered. Those shattering moments, those create the gaps, which is what Bardo is. Those create the holes in conventional experience that then allow insight and truth to filter in. And, you know, how that can be brought about, especially in this death-denying culture, is a very challenging point. Um, I think partly it will be, it will be transformed as, uh, the hospice movement gains increased momentum in the West as the, what's referred to sometimes as the silver tsunami, which is really the aging boomers, as we become more interested in this popular thing called conscious dying, I think that will start to shape-shift and trickle down into, into younger um, people. A lot of the literature around this and the death and dying movement, a lot of more recent publications, have kind of contributed to an idea of the good death, as if there's such a thing as a good way to die and then there's a bad way to die and there's a right way to die and a wrong way to die. And some of that literature seems to me to be contributing to a little bit more anxiety yeah, exactly. <laughs> than we than we want to have around this. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about that? Do you have a concept of the good Yeah, death that's a really or, great – that's uh, a, it can paradoxically backfire. It's, it's a – you know, conscious dying is um, – they're near enemies to really anything. They're shadow sides to, to everything, as you know. And one of the shadow sides or the near enemies of conscious dying is becoming um, 
almost neurotically prepared, you know, in the sense that you're going to create such an ideal version of your own death that when reality comes in, it, it often doesn't um, fulfill your expectations. And in fact, uh, I think for it's yourself so, or for especially exactly maybe even more so for a dying uh, loved one. Or. Exactly, and I think it was Sogyal Rinpoche himself who once said that expectation is premeditated disappointment. So the idea of a good death, in my view, is study, prepare, do what you can, and then just like preparing for a good trip, you know, you want to fill up your gas tank, you want to pack properly, you want to have your maps, and then when the trip starts, you just put all that away and you enjoy the ride. Because otherwise what will happen is you will come in with such um, false expectation, false hope that... that uh, you know, your expectations may not resonate with reality. And then that in itself can backfire and create a so-called bad death. So what constitutes a good death fundamentally, and this is so important, is basically just getting out of the way. Death is one of the very few things in life that you don't have to do. The only thing you have to do is just get out of the way. But, you know, we're not, it, it, the jingle sometimes is, we're not human beings, we're human doings. So, the, yeah, the shadow side is being a little bit too fanatical about the uh, idea of a good death, trying too hard, preparing too hard. Um, so while I obviously think it's very important to do the preparation, to do the practices, when death comes a- around, then you even have to let go of the map itself. You have to, as, as we say in our tradition, as you know, we have to self-liberate even the antidote. So that means we have to release everything. And for human doings as ourselves... That's not such a simple thing to do. So really, the you know, as I try to convey repeatedly throughout this particular book, is the irreducible instruction for a good death, which um, simultaneously is, in my opinion, the irreducible instruction for a good spiritual practice, is simply relaxation. Just simply let go, relax into the nature of your own being. And if you do that, that central ingredient alone, without recourse to anything else, without recourse to any of these highfalutin, fancy technical practices which have their place, you don't need any of that. In a certain sense, um, I refer to some of these practices like Pure Land Practice, Bardo, Poa, some of these more esoteric things. This is what I talk about as insurance dharma. It's there in the tradition for a reason. It's plan B, it's plan C, plan D. If plan A doesn't quite go, it's it's your way or its way. But plan A is really, it's simultaneously the uh, simplest thing to do, but simple doesn't always mean easy. Um, so if you can relax, if you can simply just open, relax, and allow the process to take place, that's all I'm you I'm going to ask you to articulate this concept of relax because for people who are not used to this hearing this over and over again from the great masters, teachers, whatever, relax your mind, relax your mind, relax your mind. I can remember when I first started hearing this in the 70s, and there was really, we were not making a big (laughs) distinction between relax your mind and go to the beach and hang out. That's right, yeah. And have a picnic and have a barbecue or whatever. And so I really going to ask you to please try to hone in a little bit on this concept of relax and it does sound easy, and we know from experience that it's not so easy. Yeah, that's so, uh, nothing could be more important than this topic. You know, and as they say in the in the tradition, 
as teachings become more advanced, they actually become more simple. And that, paradoxically, is what makes them difficult. So for Westerners, this, I, this notion of relaxation is paradoxically one of the hardest things we can do. So we're not just talking about couch potato, lay on the beach, relaxation. That's basically you know, indulging, um, laying back into a samsaric form of relaxation, which is just going to put you into sleep. So the trick, therefore, becomes um, proper relaxation. And, and how do you do that? Well, that takes... Um, Again, ironically, it takes a little bit of effort to learn how to relax properly because if we don't, we're just going to fall back into our habitual patterns. So traditional, conventional relaxation basically is a default into you know, um, a suntan, a, a default into just basically letting go in a somewhat less than skillful way because when, when, the, when the mind lets go in this um, less than ideal manner, then usually what happens is because of habit, which is just another way, kind of a, a colloquial way to talk about karma, it's just that particular habit or karma then takes over. And this is really, I, I should inter- insert this. This is one of the central teachings that will apply to this idea of relaxation. And the idea is this, and that is that if we don't take control over our minds when we die, and then karma takes control, habit takes control, as it does now during life. I mean, if we don't control our own experience now, it's our habitual defaults, it's our habitual reflexive responses that basically control our lives now. So again, what is found then is found now. So in order to shift our default from this kind of lazy relaxation into a kind of a wisdom relaxation, uh, interestingly enough, it takes a little bit of effort and practice in terms of how to relax properly. And this is what, of course, our meditations are designed to do. You know, we're even from, from ground zero and we're sitting in meditation and we're being instructed to pay attention to our breath and to our bodies – through the first foundation, the um, four foundations of mindfulness practice, we're really learning how to relax into the present moment as it is now. So this is the type of relaxation started at the very earliest stages of any form of Buddhist meditation. Right off the bat, that type of relaxation, coming back and relaxing into your breath, coming back and relaxing into your sensory awareness, that's the type of relaxation we're talking about. So it has a similar initial feeling of letting go but then it's contained in this kind of habit of wisdom that's generated through our practices. So that is a very important point to drive home. Um, I do want to talk about some of what you call the insurance policies, uh, these specific practices. But yeah, I'm insurance salesman. I want to start with, uh, with something uh, that's not quite so esoteric for some of our listeners, uh, and that is that the second half of this book is extremely pragmatic. There's lots of things on living wills, dharma, boxes. In a perfect world, if you have the choice how you want to die, where you want to die, who you want to be with, what kind of music you want to listen to, chants, photographs, many different uh, things, and you, you, you provide checklists, and you really kind of um, invite your reader to really think about these things and to prepare in that form. Why is this a form of spiritual practice? these legal and pragmatic uh, uh, wills or advice or requests that we might make of our families? Yeah, um, two principal reasons. One, and they they both apply to what are referred to as a twofold benefit. One is benefit for self, which I'll talk about, and then just as importantly, if not more so, is benefit for others. So let's start with benefit for others. 
By preparing your advanced directives now, um, medical power of attorney, durable power of attorney, living wills, those sort of things, really you're leaving a, a marvelous parting gift for your loved ones. And, and nobody wants to do these things. I mean, they're, they're a bit of a hassle. They're not a lot of fun, but they're a fantastic spiritual practice. And we, as spiritual practitioners, I think, can um, redirect our motivation to do these things if we put it within the lens of the bodhisattva ideal, that we're not just doing this for ourselves. We really are doing it for others so that when we leave, we're not leaving a mess behind. So by engaging in this stuff, you're really doing it as an act of a bodhisattva. You're really doing it putting the benefit of others before yourself. And that, in my opinion, is very, very helpful because then you realize, wow, I really can bring my Mahayana ideal to this unwanted uh, venture of creating these advanced directives. If you have all these legal medical concerns, practical concerns, using the checklist I try to provide in this book, if all those things are set in, in motion, so to speak, then think about what it might do for you when you enter this station of life. Instead of freaking out and panicking, I didn't get this done, um, by having all these very practical uh, aspects completed, it allows you to relax. Um, and then secondly, as a, again, as a practitioner, what does it do? It's, it allows you to work with letting go now. It allows you to release these things that would otherwise hold you back. Because, you know, really, when, when everything starts to dissolve around the moments of death, the natural reflex of the grasping ego is to grasp after things. It doesn't really matter what. It's like whatever it can hold on to. And if there are memories and objects and whatnot, the mind will be directed towards those. And that grasping quality, you could say, is one of the central ingredients that creates a so-called less-than-ideal death or a so-called bad death. So if, if a good death is defined by letting go and relaxation, a less-than-good death is defined by the opposites of those. Uh, because if we let go of all these anchors, I think it was Nietzsche once said, you know, we are possessed by that which we feel we possess. And our possessions can indeed possess us at, at these moments uh, in life. So if we can die to those, if we can give those away, if we can let go of those, even on paper, it all of a sudden starts to take the luggage rack off the hearse so that in order to move the mind forward, we have to let go of all the anchors that cut us back. So again, this is a marvelous application of a spiritual, fundamental spiritual tenet um, directed towards an immediate practical aim. Let's go back for a second to a, a relatively new meditation student. They get instructions for working with their mind, but basically they're coming in with a mind that is most familiar with identifying with everything that runs through it. Right. And they're most comfortable and familiar with a mind that is pushing them around, pushing us around, I should say, pushing me around. Uh, and then you kind of have a process of going or experiencing that mind to becoming a little bit more familiar with a mind that is not so entrenched, is not so... Grooved. Uh, ...rooted. Yeah. Uh, you, you get the idea that when you start looking for your mind that actually it might not be in your body. Right. <laughs> but we don't know that when we start off. So how is the most simplest kind of introductory meditation going to get you into like a mind that... Yes. ...can go anywhere and is 
at home anywhere and can rest anywhere and be anywhere and right. anything and take any form because the essential uh, formlessness is part of it and it's not the form that, yes. we, have, that we have to make that we begin to cut through uh, yeah marvelous marvelous but I mean, you're, I mean it seems, on one hand it seems like this enormous leap which in some ways I think it is from when you come in to first sit down on a cushion and the kind of uh, work you're talking about. Well, the, in some ways, not. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The leap is the stability. <laughs> the the opportunity to experience these qualities of mind can happen literally right here and right now. So that is a, a marvelous insight because uh, we can experience virtually everything that seems so wildly esoteric that we're talking about. We can experience these things very immediately. The question that you know, what constitutes a more stable experience of this is simply the stability around that. You know, how stable are we in these levels of familiarity and recognition? And that, I think, is really important because what it means, therefore, is that when we engage in our meditation practices, we can have glimpses of these qualities of mind right here and right now. And that, to me, is tremendously inspiring. It means like, you know what, I, I get this, I see this. And then that inspires us to do what? It inspires us to, to acquire the stability that really constitutes progress. So um, that in itself, I think, is very, very important. As we go through this um, particular path, whether it's the bardos or the spiritual path altogether, and as you alluded to, you know, the, the jailhouse of the mind, as you mentioned it, or what I f- often talk about is the grooving of the mind. In fact, neurologically, there's a lot of traffic these days now with even this idea of neuroplasticity, you know, how it is that we cut or groove or hardwire our mind to behave in certain patterns. This is just a kind of a neurological correlate, again, to this idea of habit. And this, let me just say this very briefly about the karmic bardo becoming, and you'll see immediately how it applies. It's actually said in the karmic bardo becoming, when the mind comes out of this formless state after death, that there comes a point in, in this particular dreamlike state where we'll come across these grand canyons, literally chasms. They will appear to us as great chasms. There are three of them. And these chasms will, will simply be the representations of our principal habitual patterns which are relating to experience um, from the perspective of passion, aggression, or ignorance. These are the three root poisons or the three default, fault in a double entendre kind of sense. Fault in terms of being you know, not so good, a mistake. Fault in terms of being a cut or a groove. So really what this, what this alludes to that is so compelling is that whether we know it or not, we are always meditating. We are always practicing. We are always becoming increasingly familiar with either wisdom or confusion. So when we engage in our meditation now, simply because we're so well-practiced in cutting these grooves of habitual pattern, like you mentioned, you know, jealousy, passion, all the things that we fall into in our meditation, we're sitting in meditation and our mind kind of falls into these entrenched habits. Those are patterns of thought like currents of water streaming over sandstone that then create grand canyons of our experience. These are faults that we continually cut. We literally practice digging these faults. And then when we sit down in meditation and our mind is constantly being seduced or dropped into these states, we're simply bearing witness to our proficiency in all our samsaric meditation, basically. And it is this, when you talk about the the kind of terrifying aspects in the bardo after death, 
this is all that's happening after death. You are simply bearing witness to these deep grooves, these hellish states of mind that you have created for yourself now. There's nobody after death that's going to be sitting there casting you into these dimensions of experience. You are the sole person that judges your own experience, and your mind becomes reality after death. So the terrifying aspects in the bardo that we're so afraid of are nothing more than the rejected, unwanted, terrifying aspects of our own mind right now. I'm going to ask you to clarify that. It comes up in the book over and over again. And again, I, I think that we might have listeners who don't quite get that. Your mind becomes reality after death. Like, what is it now? I mean, what, what is right. it now, or what is it? Is it that we think it's it is, or how do we understand that difference? Well, thank goodness that mind doesn't become reality right now, or <laughs> we would be even worse trouble than we are. This is where we have. This is very interesting to me, Helen. This is where we actually have to pay homage to our bodies. You know, it's so easy to diss and reject this body, but especially in Vajrayana Buddhism, as you know. The body is as important as the mind. It's as treasured as the mind. And thank goodness that we have the body now to restrain the mind. Because if we didn't, things would be a lot worse off than they are now, simply because so much of our experience is driven from an egoic base. Self-referential, selfish, and obviously the byproducts of that is what's taking place in the world today. So what happens when mind becomes reality after death? Again, if we didn't have the experience of dreams, it would be a little bit difficult to gain some suggestion or intimation of what's taking place here. But when we talk about mind becoming reality, look at your dreams. What is taking place there? There's nothing else. There's no external experience to distract you. You could even say, and just like in the Bardo's After Death, there is no such thing as distraction because what are you being distracted from? There's no longer any anchor. Distraction becomes your reality. That's the other reason the bardos can become hellish, because there's there's no hitching post in the bardos. And if you don't have a hitching post, which is form, then what happens is the, the ego, which I think Eckhart Tolle has a beautiful definition of ego, ego is um, exclusive identification with form. When that form is gone, that means ego is gone, And unless a mind, a heart-mind, can relate to that vast, open, empty space, which is all virtually synonymous with enlightenment itself, what does it do? It, we, contracts. And this is also a very interesting thing for me as well, because if we talk about the two kind of generative elements of both samsara and nirvana, we already uh, suggested the generative element of nirvana, which is what? Relaxation. What's the opposite of relaxation? It's contraction. And this is exactly what happens after we die. Because we're not familiar with the formless qualities of our mind, we're not familiar with vast open space. Trungpa Rinpoche once beautifully said, space is the Buddhist version of God. We're afraid of this God. It's too open. It's too spacious. Our minds are too big. We're we're actually afraid of the luminosity and the emptiness of our own mind. We're afraid of the thermonuclear power of our own mind. And when that mind is released, and the luminous bardo of Dharmata, I like to talk about it as all heaven breaks loose. It's so dazzling. It's so overwhelming. Our enlightenment is so brilliant and radiant and powerful that we can't relate to that level of our own power. What do we do? We contract away from it. That's the first generative element of samsara, that contracts us out of the luminous bardo of dharmata 
into the karmic bardo becoming. What happens in the karma, karmic bardo becoming is karma is unleashed, all hell breaks loose. And of course, what do we do now? We, again, contract in fear from that. So there are two levels of contraction that take place that are then reiterated um, in the virtual contractions of the labor of our mother as she contracts and delivers, delivers us into this world. So this is, a, you know, for, for the listener, bear with me here because this, this is a little bit of a, of a universal tour of the origin of this confused reality. It's also the part of the book that gets very scary. But again, it's, it's only scary because our, our own mind is unleashed. But well, the, it's, it's, it's scary also because you have to have a lot of confidence to think that you might know how to handle it. Um, it, it's not just that the descriptions are scary, and then of course you can revert back to you know Plan B. What if I'm not a Buddhist, right? And uh, and and I I don't know about the mind in this way, and I've never had teachings about the nature of mind in this way, and I'm just trying to be a good person. I'm just trying to do good deeds, and maybe that's going to get me through. <laughs> exactly. So let me finish this little tour, and then let me say a couple yeah. things about this, Helen. These are really, I think, helpful points. What I did want to finish saying here is that this this generative impulse of samsara, um, if you want to use that phrase, this contractive impulse, as we just seen rather briefly, will eventually contract us into this physical form. The reason this is so helpful for me in terms of understanding what I'm doing even now through my daily life, again, is this idea of the universal process, is that this quality of contraction then doesn't stop. It continues. And the way it continues moment to moment for us is what? Grasping. Grasping after thought, grasping after thing, which is what? Grasping after form. Ego is exclusive identification with form. So this, again, the universality of this process is so exciting to me. You know, it shows me that I am grasping after thoughts and things right now in exactly the same way I will grasp after form after I die. So I just wanted to complete that process because yeah, I think that's it, the scary part. Well, the scary part. <laughs> what, what makes it scary for you? Say more about that. Well, uh, it's scary because I, uh, you know, I just think about my own capacity to not grasp. You know, and practice, 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 and like clutch, clutch, grasp, grasp. You know, and and uh, it, it for me certainly it hasn't been a, a nothing. There's not not been an expedient means here. Right. And so um, am I going to figure this out before I die? Well, let me say a couple of things about that. And this dovetails into one of the questions you asked just a second ago. You know, I think this will tie in. What does someone do that, that's not a practitioner, that's not even a Buddhist? You know, they're, they're, they might perhaps listen to this or get some sense of these teachings. How can any of this apply to them? Well, they're, they're not only are they near enemies, as I alluded to earlier, they're also what are called near friends. And the near friends means, and this is, a, this is a kind of a central Vajrayana idea, right, that within any phenomena that arises, there's always inherent wisdom in anything that arises. This is exceedingly important. Um, and the way it applies here is that karma is not always the bad boy on the block. You know, as I alluded to earlier, um, Karma will take care of you after you die. If you have a life filled with tremendous goodness, you don't have to belong to any tradition. You know, you're simply a good person who engages their life with integrity, honesty, authenticity, generosity, and compassion. 
you are going to groove your mind in very healthy, wisdom, powerful ways. And those habits, that good karma will take good care of you. So, for instance, I often think of my own mother. You know, she, she wasn't a Buddhist at all, but she was one of the most beautiful, kindest, most loving people I've ever known in my life. I didn't worry about her death at all because I knew the force of her goodness would, would take care of her. So in that regard, you could say that one of the principal preparatory practices for death or good death is simply just leading a good life. You know, let, let your habitual patterns continue. What you're doing good now will be found, you know, um, after you die as well. That goodness will take good care of you. Now, for those who want to establish a, a, a very, I think, applicable relationship to their mind in terms of dealing with all these things that arise, because sometimes, especially when you read the Bardo literature, it's not always... Um, I guess you could say if there's a fire and brimstone in Tibetan Buddhism, it would come here. And basically what it's doing is, you know, as you know, we, you know, we can't put the fear of God in a Buddhist because they don't espouse the principle of a creator. But what we yeah, can do, we, what, what we can do, and this is actually a very good thing to do. In fact, Lama Zopa Rinpoche wrote an entire book on this. You can instill what's called wholesome fear. So you don't put the fear of God you put the fear of karma into you. And even the great St. Milarepa, as you know, you know the, the great master who attained and is revered as an individual who attained complete enlightenment in one life, you know, he said after he realized the implications of his karmic deeds, he'd killed 35 people when he was young. You know, he said, in horror of death, I took to the mountains. Again and again, I contemplated on the uncertainty and the hour of death. Capturing the fortress, the fortress of the deathless, unending nature of mind, now all fear of death is over. So in my opinion, especially as a student of Tibetan Buddhism, I use Milarepa as, as a profound source of inspiration because I look at my life, and as you know, the four reminders or the four thoughts that turn the mind, a very powerful preparatory practice for death, these are all very powerful ways to look at your experience and put a wholesome fear, good fear, in terms of being responsible for your activities, being responsible for the contents of your behavior. And by so doing, then you're actually preparing for your death in a very, very powerful way. And it makes you, it makes you accountable in a very powerful way. So this, again, is a, is a marvelous way for anybody, you know, even a person who doesn't engage in meditation at all, to really, you know, go towards the end of life with, a, you know, an incredible sense of kind of confidence and, and strength. And as the Sakyong himself once says, Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, he says, you know, confidence itself almost becomes your body after you die. And just by taking refuge in the strength and the confidence of this view that can dictate our lives now in the best sense of that word, then we realize that those same principles, those same habits that we're cutting right now, moment to moment, with every thought that we elect to cultivate or generate, that's a, a small practice of generation stage practice, with every practice that we elect to, or, or, or thought or emotion that we elect to let go of or die, that's also a practice. Every time we do that, we're actually setting in motion, grooving our mind in ways that when that mind is revealed, without the mediation of the body, then basically um, it's time to celebrate. You know, the freedom there that we've longed for now becomes our experience, 
And we can really, as so many um, traditions put forth, really look forward to this treasured moment at the end of life as a profound celebratory occasion and something that we truly can look forward to. Thank you, Andrew. That's a great way to end. Opening, relaxing, and loving. Yeah. It's really pretty simple.